0: Hey, before we get into the message this morning, a couple things. Next Saturday night, 7 o'clock, right here in the auditorium, is our Christmas Eve candlelight service from 7 to 8. We invite all of you to be with us. It's a special night as we sing Christmas carols and have a short message. Everyone is in here, including the kids. Um, So it's a special night. So we would love to have you as part of our Christmas Eve candlelight service from 7 to 8. Next Saturday, there will be no service on Christmas Day, but we will have services then on New Year's Day on January. The first I think it's a great way to get the new year started is to be in God's house on New Year's Day and say this is a year where we're really setting aside uh, our relationship with God and we are making God a priority in our life and we're going to start the very first day of the year by being in God's house and getting started that way. So that's January the 1st. We're going to be starting a new series that day as well. So we, we hope that you can be with us on Sunday, January the 1st. What well, we just sang, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And uh, the reason we sang that song this morning is because I wanted to share with you The prophecy about the place of Christ's birth from the book of Micah in the Old Testament this morning. So if you have your Bibles and want to follow along, please turn to the Old Testament book of Micah, chapter 5 and verse 2. Micah, chapter 5 and verse 2. This verse is a prophecy from God the Father to encourage faith. In his people. And though the rest of the book is God speaking through Micah the prophet to the people of God, here in chapter 5, verse 2, we have a verse where Micah is simply recording the words of God himself to the people. This is God the Father speaking here in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And God is speaking, so we need to listen to what God says. God says, as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, seemingly insignificant among the clans of Judah. From you, a king will emerge who will rule over Israel on my behalf. One whose origins are in the distant past. The reason why this prophecy from God to his people was such an encouragement is if you go up to verse 1 and even back through chapter 4, you will find that the setting of this prophecy is, is where the people of God have been completely broken and humiliated. In fact, they are in a state of abysmal helplessness and hopelessness. They have been invaded by a foreign force. I believe Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And they have put a siege around the city of Jerusalem. And the beginning of chapter 5 even tells us that a foreign leader will come and literally slap the king's face of Judah. An insult, obviously. And the reason that the people of God are in such a low condition at this point in their history is because they turned their backs on God. They had forsaken the ways of God and the will of God and said, God, we're going to do things our way. And they began to regress. Morally and spiritually and and idolatry rose and all of this and they got themselves into such a weakened state that they were just ready for the picking if you will from foreign nation to come in and basically begin to subjugate them and and rule over them and and this was the position of the people of God at this point but Micah And obviously, God, through Micah, wants to give them encouragement. He wants to tell them that even though you are suffering greatly now because of your sin and disobedience to God, this is not what God has for you in the future. As Jeremiah even said to them, God has plans for you, and they are plans to ultimately prosper you, you see, and to bless you. Not to ever put you in this position, but they were there by their own doing. And that through this pain and suffering that they would go through as a nation, it would bring many of them back to God. And that's why God allowed it in the first place. So God, looking down the quarters of time, gives them this prophecy in Micah 5 two. And here in this prophecy, in this one verse in the Old Testament, you not only have the identity of the place where the Messiah would be born, we're going to get to that in just a moment, so it's the story of a place, but you also have here the story of a plan and the story of a person. I want to first direct our attention to the, towards the end of the verse where we see the story of a plan. Where God says, from you, this little town of Bethlehem, a king will emerge who will rule, not notice in Israel, notice it says, over Israel on my behalf. And the reason why that was significant too is because at this time, the kingdom of Israel, if you will, was divided. It was a divided kingdom. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom's capital was Samaria. And the southern kingdom's capital was Jerusalem. And they were a divided people. And they were a broken people. And they were a hurting people. And they were a pretty helpless people. And they were humiliated at the state that they were in. But God said, I'm going to send to you a Messiah. And this Messiah is coming to be king over you one day. Now we know that the Bible teaches that one day Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will literally rule and reign over the earth. But now, at this time, it is not God's plan to rule in a physical way here on earth. Now he is building a spiritual kingdom through the hearts of those who believe and trust in him. That is his kingdom. And yet the concept of the Messiah being a king and ruling over the hearts and lives of men have been there since the announcement of the birth of Christ itself. Listen to these words from the angel to Mary. He says, listen Mary, You will become pregnant and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will never end. Jesus now is building a spiritual kingdom in the hearts and lives of people today like you and me. But one day, Jesus' kingdom will be a literal, earthly, physical kingdom in which he will rule over the entire earth. The concept of king associated with Jesus, the Messiah. Think about the words of the wise men. When they came to Jerusalem, looking for Jesus, the Messiah, and they say to Herod, where is he who is born King of the Jews, for we have seen his star as it rose, and we have come to what? To worship him. Because if you believe that Jesus truly is the king that the Bible reveals him to be, and the person that he is, as we're going to see in a minute, then the only logical and normal response of any human being would be to live a life of worship, just like the wise men did. Again, you see this concept of his kingship, if you will, running even up through his trial and crucifixion. When he stands before Pilate, Pilate says to the people who have brought him to Pilate, Behold your king! And the people say, Oh, Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. They rejected him as their king, the one who would emerge from Bethlehem. And Pilate even makes up a sign or placard to place upon the cross of Christ, which says, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Even one of the thieves that was crucified next to Jesus, turns to Jesus and says, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turns to him and said, Today you will be with me in paradise. And then finally all the way to the book of Revelation. Where like in Micah. The word of God declares that the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. A verse from Revelation that George Frederick Handel included in his very famous Messiah that we hear so much around Christmas time. He shall reign forever and ever. That's always been the plan of God. Not just to come and to be a good example and and a good teacher and all of that, but to come and be king in the hearts and lives of human beings whom he created. And one day to set up his very literal, earthly, physical kingdom on this earth. And those of us who believe and trust in him... As who he claims to be, we will be part of that kingdom forever and ever. I hope you will be encouraged by that this morning. You see, that's what makes Christmas such a wonder of a time. Because we're not just talking about something that happened in human history and it has no implications or ramifications down through history. It absolutely does that the coming of Jesus Christ at Bethlehem or in Bethlehem has changed the course of history and eternity forever. And especially for you and I. So the story of this prophecy is the story of a plan. A plan where a king will emerge who will rule over Israel on my behalf. It's also the story of a person a very unique person. In fact, none like him has ever set foot on earth and ever will. For the Bible teaches us that this person, this Messiah whose coming will be in Bethlehem has his origins in the distant or literally in the Hebrew, eternity past. In other words, Jesus didn't start To begin in Bethlehem. That that was not where he began his existence. He has always existed as the second person of the Trinity. The son of God. You think about that. That begins again to shed some more wonder on this whole story of Christmas. That the one who came. Was God. And when he came as a human being, that little baby, he then came as the God man, 100% deity, 100% humanity. There is never anyone else like Jesus, no other one. And he left willingly. His place as the second person of the Trinity in heaven, having existed forever. We don't even know how long that is. The Bible doesn't tell us. God could have, you know, since God has always been, we don't know, you know, where in that time, if you will, even though God is timeless, how long it was that God began creation. But the thing we do know for sure is this. God could have existed throughout eternity without ever creating anything. He is the self-existent God. He needs nothing outside of himself to exist. And he could have been perfectly fulfilled and satisfied and content to just be God throughout all of eternity with ever Ever bringing any of us into being. But the one whose origins are from eternity past, the one who said to the Jewish people, Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham ever existed, I was there. I was there before creation. And I am the one who created it all in the first place. In fact, listen to these words out of the New Testament book of Colossians speaking about Jesus the Messiah. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For all things in heaven and on earth were created by him. All things, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, whether principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and all things are held together in him. He is the head of the body, the church, as well as the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that he himself may become first in all things. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son, and through him to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The glory of Jesus. And when we think about the fact of who Jesus is in his person. That he would do what he did, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. Not because he ever had to create the earth or any of us who live on it, but because he wanted to. Not because he ever had to leave the glories of heaven and and assume a human body and live on earth to declare very clearly who God is and his love for us. And again, ultimately by going to the cross and dying as our replacement and as our savior and as our substitute on the cross, taking the wrath of God on himself. So we would never have to. That God, that Jesus, that's the one who was born in Bethlehem. No wonder the wise men said, we have come to worship this one because he is great. And if we simply knew who Jesus really was, then we would never even think about taking Christ out of Christmas. We would never even think about taking the Lord's name in vain. We would never think about disrespecting Him or not revering Him in any way if we truly believe in the person of who He is and of the King that He is. Because in this prophecy, we have the great story of a person unlike any person who, again, has ever set foot on earth, and the story of a plan. But we also have the story of a place. A place of his birth. A place the prophet Micah records from God the Father's lips is a place called Bethlehem Ephrathah. Seemingly insignificant. Let me remind us of some of the history, though, of Bethlehem, this little town, very tiny, some five miles away from Jerusalem, and yet really tiny. We would probably talk about Bethlehem today as a one-horse town or a one-traffic-light town type of thing. The first time that Bethlehem is mentioned in the Bible is all the way back in the book of Genesis. Rachel, Jacob's favored wife, is getting ready to birth. And she gives birth to a little boy named Benjamin. But she dies in giving birth to Benjamin. And the Bible tells us in the book of Genesis that they bury Jacob and his family, bury Rachel, just outside of Bethlehem. It is a significant place. At first, when we're introduced to this town, it is a town of sort of sorrow and pain. And yet it reminds us that the one who comes from this town is a man, Jesus, who is acquainted with our sorrows and our pain. Then you move through history and you find that Bethlehem is also sort of the the centerpiece for this wonderful love story between a couple named Boaz and Ruth. And in that story, we see that Bethlehem takes on a little bit of a different flavor. Instead of being a place that reminds us of sorrow and pain and death, like it did in the death of Rachel when she gave birth to Benjamin, now it reminds us of a place of mercy and compassion and acceptance and new beginnings. Because Ruth found all of that in Bethlehem with a man named Boaz. And then you move a little bit further in the history of Bethlehem and we find that Bethlehem was now the birthplace of one named David, son of Jesse, one who would be king over Israel one day. And yet in all of its history, even from this little town, Bethlehem never really seemed to catch on as something that was significant. But God chose that the most significant person who would ever be born on earth would be born from a most insignificant town. The name Bethlehem means house of bread. And isn't it interesting that In Jesus' ministry, one day he was teaching the people. And he stops and he says, for the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to all in the world who believe in him. And then Jesus goes on to say, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never be hungry again. Sort of makes sense that the bread of life would be born in the house of bread. And the region, if you will, that Bethlehem is in is a place called Ephrathah, it means a place of fruitfulness or fullness. And it also reminds us that when you and I are willing to believe in and trust in and place our confidence in and follow the one who was born from Bethlehem, Jesus, the Messiah, we can live a very fruitful, fulfilling and satisfied life in him. Because there really is no ultimate contentment and fulfillment and satisfaction apart from Jesus Christ. That's why so many people today who do not have a relationship with Jesus keep trying to find fulfillment and satisfaction and contentment in the things of this world, in physical and material things that can never fulfill and satisfy and make us content. No matter how much we have, there's always something more, God, right? Maybe it's that next thing or that next relationship or that, you know, that next promotion. Or maybe it's if I go here or do this. And they're always looking for that next thing that's finally going to bring that inner fulfillment that only Jesus Christ can give us. The one born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. But I also want. To focus here for a moment. Because this is the way of God. God takes pleasure in doing it this way, if you will. If you and I would have wrote the story of the coming of the Messiah, God leaving the glory of heaven and coming to earth, where would we have had him born? Well, we would have probably picked the biggest city on earth and, and, and the biggest palace to be born in and all the pomp and circumstance and all the hullabaloo and everything, right? That's probably the way man would choose to do it, right? Not God. God said, I'm going to choose this little town, this very insignificant town to people. And that's where the Messiah is going to be born. Because I want to show people how I do things that is so much different than the way men would do things. Because I want to show people in this a lesson. And that is this, that there is nothing insignificant when God is involved in something. When his fingerprints and his handprints are on something, there is no insignificance to it. It becomes very significant. Just like Bethlehem. I mean, we still sing about it. We still talk about it to this day. People still, every time at this year, flock over to the Holy Land and go to Bethlehem to see the place of Messiah's birth. A small little town. I mean, really small. Those of you that have been there... You know how small Bethlehem is. It's nothing. And yet, that's where Messiah was born. Now the reason that should resonate with us and mean something to us is because many times in our lives, as human beings, we struggle with significance. Who am I? What does it matter that I'm even alive? How does my life count for anything? And we need to be reminded and realize something. When God's handprints and fingerprints are upon us, when the Bible tells us that we are his workmanship, then we are significant. There's no insignificant about us. All of us are significant. First of all, all of us are significant in that we've all been created by the hand of God and given life through the breath of God. But especially those of us who know the Lord in a personal way. We should never go through a day of our life thinking that somehow we don't matter. Because again, we base many times our significance the way the world does. It's on what we have physically and materially and and what kind of position we hold in the world and how much prominence we have and how many people know us and how many likes we get on Facebook. How many friends we have. And God is saying, don't you realize you're already significant? Because I, the God of this universe, I made you. I have a plan and purpose for your life. There's nothing insignificant about you. We could even say that about our little church. It's something that little churches struggle with when they look around at all the big churches. And sometimes people in little churches begin to think, well, who are we? We're just this little church over here. And look at all these churches that have thousands of people. And God wants to remind us through a story like Bethlehem. There are no insignificant groups of people meeting when God's there, when God's a part of it, when God is at work, when God's fingerprints and handprints are on the ministry, there's nothing insignificant about it. That's why you never see in the Bible any mention from God about how big or small a church is because it doesn't matter to God doesn't matter how big or small something is all that matters to god is will you place yourself and your church or your life or your business or whatever in my hands and if you do that there will never be anything insignificant about it again because it will be my hands at work and my fingerprints all over it and i'll be a part of it from there on out that's what the story of bethlehem says to us. That's one of the reasons why God chose Bethlehem. That's why in the New Testament, Paul picks up on this principle and writes to the Corinthians. He says, Corinthians, you realize that not many of you are famous from from the world's perspective. Not many of you are the wisest in the world. Not many of you hold positions of great power and prominence and yet He says, but God delights in you. And you are significant even though you may not be in the eyes of the world. Because God chooses many times the foolish things and the little things and the small things and the insignificant things to work through so that he gets the glory for it. Rather than man taking the glory from him. And that's the story of Bethlehem. Seemingly insignificant among the clans of Judah, and yet from you, a king, the king, the king of kings and Lord of lords, the one in whom every knee will bow, every tongue will one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That king will emerge who will rule over Israel on my half, one whose origins are in the distant past. This passage reminds us that God can really begin to work in our brokenness, in our seemingly abysmal helplessness and humiliation. When we are at a place in our life where we're finally ready to listen and start listening to God. And that's where the people of Israel were here in the book of Micah, in their history. They had gotten so low and they were hurting so bad that they finally turned their attention back to God and said okay God we need to start listening to you again we need to start doing things your way and think about it at this point God didn't like come down on them and rub salt in the wound as we say and make it even worse. No, God brought them a message to encourage them and to remind them that ultimately the plan that he has for them is a good one and not one that, you know, has their least interest at heart. Let me share this famous verse that many of you know by heart out of the book of Jeremiah. For I know what I have planned for you, God says. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I have plans to give you a future filled with hope. That's what God wants to do for you today. Ultimately, his plan is never to harm us. He has a plan to give you hope. But that hope is found in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God who came to earth and was born in that tiny little town of Bethlehem to that poor young couple named Mary and Joseph, who had to lay that little precious firstborn baby in a feeding trough of animals. That's where the Lord of glory was born. I wanted to share these words again with you this morning. Words to the song that we sang earlier, O Little Town of Bethlehem. But before I do, let me share with you how this song came to be. The year was 1865, the last year of the Civil War here in America. And a young 30-year-old pastor named Phillips Brooks from Philadelphia felt moved and led by the Lord to make a trip to the Holy Land that year. He arrived in Jerusalem and was spending time there and really had no intentions of going to Bethlehem at that point. And yet he was invited because someone had found out that this pastor from Philadelphia was staying in Jerusalem. And he was invited to come and participate in the Christmas Eve service at the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem that year of 1865. So he mounts a horse, because obviously there weren't automobiles in 1865. And he rode that horse five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And he recounts years later... That is, it was as he was approaching the town of Bethlehem. And he could see just the little cluster of lights that Bethlehem had. That he was just, again, overwhelmed by the ways of God. And how God could use such a little tiny town to make such a difference in the world. And how because God chose that little town, that little town would never be little ever again or insignificant. And so he said that as he approached Bethlehem and as he rode through a couple of the only streets in Bethlehem, the words and melody of this carol that we sing every Christmas came to him. And here are all the verses, because we don't sing all the verses. I think we sang almost all of them this morning, but most hymnals and music books do not contain every verse that he wrote. So here's the entire carol of O Little Town of Bethlehem, written by Pastor Phillips Brooks in 1865. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie, Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above. While mortal sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. O morning stars together, proclaim the holy birth, and praises sing to God the King, and peace to men on earth. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given, so God imparts to human hearts the blessings of His heaven. No ear may hear His coming, but in this world of sin... Where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Where children pure and happy pray to the blessed child. Where misery cries out to thee, son of the mother mild. Where charity stands watching and faith holds wide the door. The dark, dark night wakes, the glory breaks, and Christmas comes once more. O oh, holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this great prophecy in the Old Testament. Just one verse about a small little insignificant town that would be the birthplace of the Messiah. And yet, God, because you chose to work in that town, that little town of Bethlehem would never be insignificant again. God, I pray that this prophecy has been an encouragement to God's people today. That we would see in this very simple verse, there is the story of a plan, the story of a person and the story of a place that will forever change history and eternity. And God, I pray today that everyone here has opened up their heart to Jesus. That the reason, Lord, that they truly celebrate Christmas and that they get the significance of Christmas is because they have Christ, the Christ of Christmas, living in their heart. But Lord, if there is anyone here today that would say, I've never really been able to understand why Christians get so excited about the birth of Jesus. I've never been able to really come to this season and understand where all the joy comes from because the world right now doesn't seem like a very joyful place and maybe my life isn't filled with joyful circumstances right now and I just don't get it. I don't understand why people can sing joy to the world. But maybe now I'm beginning to see it. I'm beginning to understand What God did at Christmas time, what God did in Bethlehem, and that God did it all for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should never perish but have everlasting life. Let me ask you this morning before we close this service this morning with. Heads bowed and eyes closed and only me looking around this auditorium. Would there be anyone here this morning that would say, Pastor Jeff? I can honestly say there's never been a time where I I trusted in Jesus. I I believed in who Jesus was. I, I asked Jesus to be my Savior and, and to accept him into my heart and life but but I, I want to do that today i I want to make this next week and 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 next Sunday, that day where where we set aside to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, I want to make that look so different in my life this year because I get it now I, I want to have a relationship with this Jesus who loved me enough that he would leave heaven. And, and become a human being and come to earth to declare His love and His plan for me. And if that would be your heart's desire this morning, with no one else looking around but me, would you just simply raise your hand and just put it back down? Anyone at all? Anyone at all? Lord, we thank You For loving us so much that you did this amazing thing. You became a human being. You laid aside the independent use of your godly attributes, you took upon yourself the form of a servant. And you came to earth out of your great love for us to declare who God really is. To give us a human, visible, physical, tangible way of reaching out and touching God. And God, I pray today that Christmas, this Christmas, And this Christmas season will mean more to us because we took the time to encounter you and come to your house to worship you. Fill us, God, with yourself. Help us to be content and fulfilled and satisfied in you this year like never before. Help us, God, to make you the priority of our life. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here. Hope to see you next Saturday night, 7 o'clock, right here for our Christmas Eve service.